Welcome to Yad Chazaka Conversations. I'm Mo Salama. Here at Yad Chazaka, we believe in curiosity. We know that it's important to make space for all ideas so that we can understand them and ourselves better. Through this podcast, we'll share with you some of the fascinating and important conversations that we're having. For our first episode, we've got an amazing conversation with leaders from a range of organizations, the UJA, the American Sephardi Federation, Stand With Us, and from here in our very own community. Over our Zoom panel earlier this week, they spoke with our moderators, Eddie and Eliana, about their experiences with anti-Semitism and how that helped shape their perspectives on prejudice of all kinds. They also shared some of their own thoughts about how we can each work to overcome prejudices that we might hold, as well as their thoughts on our place as Jews within the Black Lives Matter movement going on right now. Before we get started, I just want to let you know about our first book club. On August 18th, Jennifer Booty will be leading us when we'll gather to discuss Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, which dives into issues of equality in the American justice system. Now to the conversation. we're ready to start. Everybody, welcome. Thank you so much for coming tonight. Thank you for taking the time. Um, welcome to Yad Chazaka's second event ever. Uh, before we begin, I do want to give an introduction to Yad Chazaka and share some insights into what the group is all about. Um, so first of all, Yad Chazaka is a group of community members who began meeting online and over Zoom um, to openly discuss contemporary issues, share content, and talk through how we're responding to having points of view that may not necessarily be exactly the same as some of those around us. So we learn from others and we enjoy talking and even debating some of these topics in a respectful and constructive manner. Um, Yad Chazaka is just an organic outgrowth of those conversations that we started to have. So Yad Chazaka, as of now, you know, we don't have any formal leadership, no funding. Um, There's no board and no outside organizations that we're affiliated with. What we are, though, is just a diverse group of 100 members of the community, uh, both young and old, made up of men, women, people varying, uh, varying viewpoints, right, left, center, really everyone is welcome. Um, as a group, Yad Chazaka believes that it's crucial to have the important discussions around contemporary issues and topics like racism, anti-Semitism, and to always be open to new ideas, whether we agree with them or not. These issues, you know, are just too real and too important to be reduced to memes and bite-sized clips. What we need to be doing instead is having these conversations live and together in forums just like this. So we also want to make it very clear that we are unequivocally against anti-Semitism in all its forms, and we plan to expand on that discussion through this panel that we put together for tonight. It's important to know that Yad Hazaka is not about labeling anyone or calling anyone anything. Um, it's about Instead, it's, it's about all of us coming together to talk about the ways in which we could improve um, because every single one of us can do better and there always is room to improve. So now a lot of us are on this Zoom, um, a lot of members of Yad Chazaka, and some of us opted to put YH next to our screen name. So you'll see our name and then YH next to it to show who we are and our support for this mission. We're always looking for new voices to engage with, and we're always looking to engage in a thoughtful and constructive manner. 
um, in order to have constructive conversations where we can learn from one another. So now that we've introduced our group, let's move on and introduce our fantastic panel. I'll leave it to Eliana to introduce our first panelist. Thanks, Eddie, for that awesome introduction here. Um, I'm going to actually start with Jason. Jason, thank you so much for joining this panel. Um, as the executive director of the American Sephardic Federation, your role is really to preserve and promote the entire diaspora of Sephardic Jews across the world. And you work with everything from the WJC and multiple Jewish organizations and the Conference of Presidents down to working with missions in like the Middle East and North Africa from Cyprus to Egypt to Morocco. So um, I wanna ask you, can you please just discuss some of your own experiences with anti-Semitism, whether it be in the professional world or personally? Sure, so I, I wanna thank uh, Eddie and Ilana and everyone else from Yad HaZakah for this opportunity uh, to join you this evening. Uh, I think my experiences are probably going to be a little different than many other people, uh, dare I say. Um, the KKK distributed flyers outside of my middle school. Uh, my yearbook, freshman year in high school, made national news, including an article in the New York Times, when my, my bubby, my grandmother, civil rights activist, discovered that a couple of seniors were giving Zig Heil the Nazi salute. One of those students uh, was in my class. I walked by him every day, almost every day, you know, with his skinned head, black boots, red laces. Believe it or not, that was nothing compared to what my mother and what my uncles experienced. Our home was under the surveillance of a far-right organization called the John Birch Society, uh, which was run out of the principal's office of our elementary school. And when they walked to school, sometimes the next-door neighbor would give them the Nazi salute. Uh, and who are you going to complain to? He was a sergeant on the police force. So before you think my town is some distant uh, backward hamlet, I mean, I'm speaking to you from Stratford, Connecticut, a little over an hour from Brooklyn. Uh, Rabbi Google tells me that uh, Sherry Zion is one hour and 24 minutes away. So in other words, not so far away and not so long ago. And yet, this is, this is a story of what's possible because we've overcome this divisiveness and discrimination, not entirely, but to a great extent. And the past couple of years, I've actually been honored to say the brochot over at the official uh, Hanukkah uh, candle lighting at Town Hall. This is an initiative of our wonderful mayor, Laurel Hoydick, who spent a lot of time with Bubby as she was growing up and being groomed for higher office. And in marked contrast to the past, the Hanukkah celebration is attended by Stratford's finest and bravest. So imagine that, you know, going from a middle school and high school experience with white supremacists to now having not one, but actually two Hanukkiot uh, on town hall grounds and having a celebration for the entire town. Awesome, thank you, Jason. I'm happy to go uh next. Thanks, Hindi. <laughs> Hi, Ileana. Hi, everyone. Hindi Pupko. I work at UJA Federation. Um, so like many of us who work professionally in the Jewish world, my personal and professional, professional life has become enmeshed. Um, and when Eliana asked us this question, it was either, you know, personally or professionally. So I'll speak with both about both, but there's no real distinction between the two. So I grew up in Montreal, Canada. 
And my dad is a big sort of activist there. We spent our Sundays going to, you know, we'd wait outside, he'd visit someone in the hospital, run back in the car, run to some kind of pro-Israel rally, come back in the car, it was a very activist life. And I remember growing up always feeling um, like the police in Canada were not on our side. I was sort of true or not, we grew up believing, this is definitely not PC to say, but you know, it's somewhat intimate crowd that like the French Canadian police were not on our side. You know, my dad would grow up and say, they're all anti-Semites, you know, be careful. So we grew up feeling like a minority, which is not necessarily the case for every town in America. And every time we would go to Plattsburgh um, because they had the only kosher cocoa pebbles available, we always felt like very free crossing the border, which sounds crazy, right? It wasn't um, Uzbekistan, it was Canada, but nonetheless, we felt this freedom crossing into the border, land of the kosher cocoa pebbles and land of the free. And I remember when I moved to New York, I felt that kinship immediately with NYPD. Like, okay, unlike growing up in Montreal, they're on my side. I felt really safe as a Jew in New York. And then as we all know, um, these terrible violent assaults began to happen about a year and a half ago, most visibly on the streets of New York, mostly in Brooklyn. Um, and I remember, you know, not only was it my professional job to address this on behalf of UJA, but as a parent, I began for the first time to feel afraid. I remember standing in the subway, holding my young son Akiva's hand and on uh, graffiti across the, the, the wall on 103rd Street and Broadway, Jews are not welcome here. And um, I don't necessarily present as Jewish. I don't know what people think of me, but there's my little son Akiva with a kippah and tzitzit. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this feels like a different New York. And I think the one lesson, um, not that that, that that episode is over at all, right? The assaults are still going on. I think some of us foolishly thought, oh, the pandemic, the pandemic will bring an end to the physical assaults. It has not. Um, but as one of the people who was privileged to be part of organizing that march across the Brooklyn Bridge, I felt like a, a New Yorker again. I felt at home again because what I saw and felt crossing the Brooklyn Bridge, which I believe will become a theme tonight perhaps, is many different New Yorkers standing with me. So in a moment of extreme vulnerability, one that I had experienced unlike Jason for the first time, quite frankly, um, I really understood what it meant and the power of allies from across our city showing up with us and standing with us and marching across that bridge as a very proud and confident Jew. Thank you so much, Hindi. And um, next, I want to direct it to Rena Nasser first. Um, Rena, you have been involved, um, and I know this personally from growing up together, that you've been involved in the fight for Israel and to battle anti-Semitism since high school. You have grown up through Stand With Us, and you're now the executive director of Campus Affairs for across the US. And you're also a really valued member of the community. So I want to ask you, how you've been handling the battle of anti-Semitism professionally or personally. I had the privilege of growing up here in this community and, and feeling the, the warmth of this community. And when I got to college, I actually went to Baruch College. I felt that I can be free to be me. I've been me my whole life. I've been an open Jew and open Zionist. Once I get to college, things will be great and I'll find my community, I'll find my niche. I actually decided to take an Arabic language class because my grandfather fought in 48 and he would always tell us stories of 
what it was like in the army and what it was like in, in Syria and then in Israel. And I told myself, you know what, it would kind of be fun if I could surprise him and speak to him in Arabic. I know the slang, but it'd be cool to really show what I've done. And I remember in the, in the first day of class noticing I was the only Jewish person in the room, or at least the only non-Muslim in the room. And that was okay. It's cool, cool to meet new people. A few days into this class, our professor said, Arabic is a beautiful language, rich in culture and history. There's another language spoken in the Middle East, and it really doesn't belong there. And maybe one day it won't be there anymore, and we'll solve that problem. And my jaw dropped. I had always considered myself an active Zionist following in my grandfather's footsteps. And then all of a sudden, this was my time to do something, my time to say something. And I froze. I completely froze. I actually ended up sticking through the class because I was really hoping I'd muster up the courage, and I never did. When I graduated college, I told myself, how can I call myself an active Zionist and not be able to fight on behalf of Israel when I had the opportunity to, or on behalf of my grandfather's legacy? And that's really what drew me to my work at Stand With Us, to make sure that there's no other student on any college campus that's going to encounter that pushback and not have that support. Right now in the college space, we see all types of anti-Semitism. Unfortunately, it's something that I'm literally facing every day, even in COVID with the switch to remote learning. There's the traditional forms of anti-Semitism with swastikas and all kinds of Nazi-based conspiracy theories coming from students and faculty alike. But then we also see these non-traditional forms of anti-Semitism, specifically about Israel where the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel has taken tremendous power among the college campus conversation, where there are attacks on studying abroad in Israel. And for example, with NYU, shutting down NYU Tel Aviv. And even to the point of excluding Zionists from any conversation they wanna be a part of on campus, whether it's the environmental group, the feminist group, I see those two forms of anti-Semitism pretty much on a daily basis. And it's something that through my work, I'm, I'm trying to fight, but I, I do want to say it's kind of like whack-a-mole. You get one, another one pops up. You get one, another one pops up. It's a fight we're committed to, but it is certainly an uphill battle. Thank you so much, Rina. Um, and thank you for all the work you do every day to really help combat anti-Semitism on campus. Um, moving on to our final panelist, Rabbi Ricky Hidri, Rabbi Dr. Ricky Hidri, actually. Um, Rabbi, you've been a professor of Judaic studies at Yeshiva University, where you still are now. You've been a leader in our community for a long time, currently as the rabbi of Sephardic Synagogue. You've written books on the Talmud. You write many articles for magazines like Tablet. Um, so I'm just curious through your perspective, maybe through a more halachic lens, how do you see anti-Semitism and how it's manifested recently and the fight against it? Thank you. Thank you, Eddie, and for all those who have uh, organized this amazing panel. So um, I, I teach at Yeshiva University, and within my courses, I talk about the history of anti-Semitism going all the way back to Persian and Roman periods. And I feel like it's so important to see how it's developed uh, uh, over time and how persistent it is. Uh, in my personal experience, when I moved into my home about 15 years ago in Brooklyn, I was greeted by a swastika on my stoop. 
And I remember back then calling the police who came and uh, many people came, the police chief came and they showed a tremendous amount of concern and took it very seriously. So we've um, really been uh, lucky to, to have um, a tremendous amount of safety and, um, and uh, protection by our police force. Um, I know over the years visiting cities in Europe and going to synagogues there, like in Paris and Rome, and they're all blockaded. You have to go through double doors and glass and feeling lucky that we don't have to have that. Uh, but unfortunately, over the past months with the shooting in Pittsburgh and with Brooklyn and New York, um, having um, hate crimes tar targeting, tar targeting Jews more than any other, more than uh, hate crimes uh, against any other uh, group, uh, we've had to change our policies in the synagogue and uh, increase security um, uh, keep the doors locked, and um, you know it's been very sad that we that we have to um, have put those those policies uh, in place. So, you know, on the one hand, we are uh, we we have to be vigilant. On the other hand, we're also uh, grateful that um, that law enforcement and government agencies have been um, there alongside, um, helping us helping us through that. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Hideri. And so um, I want to just shift gears slightly here and um, pose a question to you guys as panelists. How may your work in the Jewish context and with anti-Semitism heightened your awareness of other forms of prejudice? Um, there's so much happening in the world today, right now that we're seeing. Um, and I, I think, Kendi, you, you can by all means start this conversation. Um, sure. Thank you for the question. Um, I think it's about our experience, but it's also about our tradition. Our tradition is quite clear when it comes to this, right? The Torah tells us that you are strangers in a strange land, and therefore you have an obligation that when others are strangers in a new land or are being tr treated as strangers, we have to take care of them. We have to look out for them. That is our obligation as Jews. Um, and more so, we also believe in Salam Elohim, that every person was created in the image of God. And for those reasons alone, um, that is reason enough that whenever someone is persecuted, when we see people who are mistreated, it is our job to stand up because that is what it means to be a Jew. And that is what we do and it's why we do it. Um, and I think what has been complicated about this moment is that there are often attempts to politicize that which need not be politicized. There is nothing political about this. When we see a group being oppressed, it is our most natural of human and Jewish instincts to say, we're here to help. We know what it's like to be alone. We know all too well what it's like to feel vulnerable and afraid. And we always say to the world around us that we should judge people for not what they are, but who they are. And every person deserves that chance. And if we want to live in a city, in a country, in a world where we are treated fairly, where we are respected, where human beings are treated as though they are created in the image of God, we bear that responsibility for others with no caveats. The worst thing that happens to us, well, not the worst, but one of the frustrating things that happens around the time of the march or the assaults on Orthodox Jews in particular in Brooklyn is we hated so much when people would say, you know what, we'll stand with you, but after you take care of that thing in your community. Or yeah, I'll support the Jews, but just condemn Israel, right? We, it's, it's, the, it's the 
most horrible feeling when someone says to you, I'll stand with you, but under these conditions, right? We never wanted people to put conditions on their solidarity with us. And I think in this moment, it behooves us to remember what that feels like. I know what it feels like. I'm sure Rena knows what it feels like. People say, oh yeah, I don't have a Jewish problem. I just hate Israel, right? As if that, that, that somehow those things are separate. So I think in this moment, we need not to, we should not do to others what we don't want done to ourselves. No caveats, it's not political, but when you see people being needlessly murdered or being treated violently or unfairly or they can't catch a break, we're there to say we stand with you and you deserve to be treated as equally as anyone else. Thanks, Cindy. Um, Rabbi Hideri, I would, I would love to hear your perspective on the same question. Thank you, thank you, Hindi. And those those sources are the uh, some of them the same ones I had in mind as well. Um, in addition, one of my favorite Mishnayot that asks, "Why was Adam created singly, whereas all the other other animals and fish and birds were created uh, with uh, many many different kinds of species? Uh, the human being was created singly uh, to teach peace among all humankind. That one cannot say to someone else, my father was greater than yours.'" because we all share the same ancestry, we all come from the same place, and we are all created uh, in, in, with dignity and uh, in the image of God. And so absolutely, I think that behooves us to treat all people uh, with equality and dignity. And we have within our, our historical memory, uh, the experience of slavery in Egypt, and we remember that always, and we experience it every year on Passover, uh, to, to teach that we have to treat those who are immigrants, those who are strangers, those who are minorities and different, um, as we would want to be treated as well. Uh, we know what it's like in our historical memory to be the subject of persecution and pogroms, scapegoating, violence, and also more subtle forms of hate, of being excluded from job sectors, from being excluded from owning land. Um, here in America, Jews could not go to uh, graduate schools could not go to medical school, and why you had to open Einstein uh, precisely for that reason. Uh, so when we see both the uh, violent hatred and the more subtle, just jabs, uh, sly remarks, uh, uh, looking, uh, looking the wrong way or using uh, dispar disparaging language, um, we know what that feels like sometimes personally and surely in our, in our long history. And uh, therefore, that sensitizes us all, and we have an uh, automatic instinctive reaction that when we see it somewhere else, we feel behooved, we feel it is a mitzvah um, to help uh, anyone else, all those in need, um, and, and help in any way we can. Thank you so much for that, Rabbi Hittery. And um, Jason, I'd, I'd love for you to also answer again why working in this space has really helped an awareness with other forms of prejudice. Well, the uh, Sephardi Nobel laureate Elias Kanadi uh, talked about how one form of prejudice results from another. And we've very much seen that in, in our work. And uh, within the Conference of Presidents representing the Sephardic voice, uh, we've tried to, to be true to the Sephardic tradition of building bridges of understanding with different communities with whom the Sephardic community has had a cultural, linguistic, and historical connection to. Uh, so last year on Yom HaShoah, 
and during U.S. Holocaust uh, Remembrance Week, uh, we gather the Conference of Presidents and ASF, along with the Mecca-based uh, uh, Saudi Arabian uh, Muslim World League, and we signed an important agreement called It Stops Now Against Hate, Bigotry, and Fanaticism. And this was in the wake of Pittsburgh and Poway. This was in the, the wake of the attacks on Colombo and the Christians uh, of Muslims in New Zealand. And the recognition was hatred against anyone is a threat to everyone. And this is the historical lesson of anti-Semitism from antiquity to the Holocaust to today. Every group that has been infected by the hatred of Jews inflicted unimaginable suffering and misery on Jews and non-Jews and ended in ruination. Bigotry knows no boundaries. Hatred of one group inevitably leads to hatred of, of others. We also came together and pledged that however appealing, we were going to reject meaningless gestures, virtue signaling and victimhood in order to focus on our shared responsibility to repair and create a better world for future generations. And we followed that up with a series of positive actions, including during the state of emergency, having an ASF delegation led by Rabbi uh, Dr. Elia Abadi uh, to be present with the Muslim World League at a major summit, uh, interfaith summit. And these are the kinds of things that we need to continue doing. Uh, and as Hindi was saying, when, when, we, when we're in need, when we're looking for others to stand up for us, if we have these relationships, they'll be there. When the combat anti-Semitism movement started and they came to ASF and they said, could you talk to some of your Christian partners? Could you talk to some of your Muslim partners? The Moroccan Americans in New York signed uh, before many of the major Jewish organizations. And that's the first Muslim majority organization in the country to sign on to this pledge. When we, every year we do a commemoration uh, for the Kojale massacre, which is an event, uh, a horrible, uh, tragic event in Azerbaijani history. Uh, we had a Holocaust survivor this year. We had a survivor of the Ishak genocide, which most people have no idea about, but these were Muslims who were persecuted and killed for being, uh, for people calling them Jews. There's no history of them being Jews, but they were killed anyway. Um, the idea was not to have what the Holocaust historian Robert Weistrick calls a competition of the victims. It was rather to recognize our shared humanity and to stand together against atrocities. Thanks, Jason. And um, Rena, I'd love uh, for you to try to answer the same question here. And then also everybody, if there's questions coming in, um, please ping uh, David Sutton if you do have anything you'd like to add for later in this chat. Thank you. All of my fellow panelists that shared before me really had a lot of tremendous insight. What I would love to add to that is particularly within the campus space, what those types of prejudices look like. It's often that the Jewish community on campus feels that they are the only ones seeking respect and protection that they deserve, but they're not getting. And that's a big part of the work I do of dealing with how to make sure those communities are getting what they need. What I've seen is when there's positive outreach with other communities on campus, outside the Hillel, outside the Chabad, outside the Israel groups, really when our Jewish student leaders or pro-Israel student leaders, because they're not all Jewish, strive to connect with the outside community and build tremendous bridges. Whenever they're dealing with anti-Semitism, the entire community comes in full force. I've seen positive engagement 
just if we're thinking about current events and everything going on politically, I've seen very positive engagement with the black communities on campus. It's easy to read a few articles and think it's the most horrible space, but when done right, the relationship building is tremendous. And I think aside from us as a community getting what we need, we see the power in that when everyone joins together for us, it's incredible to be part of that community building and that uplifting and that empowerment for other communities as well. We've seen the beautiful results of it. And to me, just making those connections within the campus space, it's, an, it's a natural progression of how to be a holistic member of the campus society and eventually real life society once, once you graduate. Thank you so much, Rena. And now I'd like to just shift over a little bit and ask one question for all the panelists. Um, the most re re relevant manifestation of prejudice in America today, as it always has been really, um, I think it's safe to say is racism. The brutal, the brutal murder of George Floyd in May uh, mobilized a movement of civil unrest that is extended from issues of police brutality uh, to major forms of institutionalized racism in America, such as but not limit, limited to mass incarceration, the lingering effects of 20th century redlining, and then just discrimination in hiring and educational admissions. Um, can you talk a little bit about your reaction to these recent events, as well as what actions you or your organizations may have begun to take to address issues of racial equality? Um, we'll start with Hindi. Thank you. Um, so I, I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio now. I know a lot of New Yorkers are displaced, so I'm in Cincinnati, but still coming back to New York in a week. And I remember being on the porch here because they have those in Ohio. I've never seen them in New York, but I have these big porches here. I remember being on my porch, um, watching the protests and my phone started ringing. And it was ringing with um, synagogues, Jewish institutions of all backgrounds, all denominations, calling and asking essentially the same question. Hindi, does UJ have any resources for us? We've never spoken about racism in our community. Can you help? Can UJA help? And what this signaled for me is that just as America was having a reckoning, so too was the Jewish community. And it was um, in our face, on our television screens, in a way that it had not been, at least in my lifetime. And what I see is, is a real change. In part, this conversation tonight is evidence of that same change where synagogues and communities um, who just hadn't had the chance to have the conversation or did not know how to enter the conversation, all of a sudden raising their hands and saying, help me, I wanna have this conversation. So part of the work that we are doing is helping Jewish communities that wanna have the conversation do just that. And it's complicated, right? I'm not suggesting that this is easy, which why organizations are saying I need some help. Um, but there are wonderful experts out there that, that can do this. Um, and in part, some of those experts are Jews of color, which is also a piece of our work right now. Right? So every community is doing the, the um, correct thing, which is introspection. And certainly as we you know, approach the high holidays, as crazy as that sounds, they are around the corner. Um, introspection is the Jewish thing to do right now. It's the moment on the calendar to do that. And part of that introspection that we need to do is around racism um, that we all participate in consciously, unconsciously, we all have biases, human nature, but also to look inside our own community and say, wait a minute, where have we misstepped? Where did we go wrong? Where do we need to do some teshuva, some repentance? And I believe right now, 
that the focus very much needs to be on Jews of color in our community. Now you might be saying, what does Jew of color even mean? Who calls themselves that? And we're in a world today where people self-identify. So some people might call themselves black Jews. Some people might call themselves Asian Jews, Jews of color. We know that Judaism is certainly not a race, right? We're much more than that. We are a people. So Jews come in all kinds of forms and in all, in all races as well. So a lot of the work that UJA is gonna be doing, and I'm sure many of you will be part of this as well, is really lifting up the voices of Jews of color in our community, making sure they are warmly embraced by every institution. Um, I spoke with, with, with a man the other day who said to me, I asked him to join a committee about this, and he said, are you telling me that there are other Jews of color out there? I'm like, yes, there are. He's like, I walked into temple, I am the only one. You're crazy. I'm like, I'm not crazy. But that was his experience. He thought he was the only one, and what a lonely way to grow up. Right, what a lonely way to think that you're the only one and it's not true. So we're gonna be doubling down on supporting and advancing Jews of color, a field fellowship to place them in Jewish institutions if they wanna work in the Jewish community for a living, which some people do, the crazy among us do. Um, so that is a big focus of our work um, beyond sort of an internal focus with Jews of color. We are also working on bridge building. There are many communities around New York City and Westchester and Long Island where Jews, and members of the black community live side by side. They are neighbors. Think about Crown Heights and other parts of Brooklyn, and yet they have never spoken. They have never met. And part of what we are doing now is working on that door-to-door, person-to-person bridge building. We're working with an incredible group of, I call them boundary-crossing hipster Hasidic Jews um, that are sort of on the ground making change and wanna work with their neighbors and wanna get to know them and finding ways for them to help each other. And in this moment, actually, we have partnered a Crown Heights Chabad group with a group called Neighbors in Action that, that helps formerly incarcerated young black men and families get back on their feet. And the Chabad rabbi, through funding from UJA, is giving food to those families, right? They're building connections, they're building bridges. Um, and also it's important, the last thing I'll say is, we also need to find ways to work together on issues of commonality. So not only us helping them, but also things that we care about. So around New York, we have been um, funding coalitions where Jews and their neighbors and particularly communities of color can work together. And we are also very much helping Jewish organizations get involved in the criminal justice space. There, there is now a Jewish coalition on criminal justice housed at the JCRC and any synagogue that wants to get involved can join that coalition and engage in meaningful, constructive criminal justice reform. Thanks. Thank you so much, Hindi. Those are really a few incredible initiatives and I'm sure many of us on this Zoom would really love to get involved. Um, I'm sure we could all exchange contact information with everybody later on. Um, Jason, I'd love to ask you the same question just in terms of if you could talk about like what you and the ASF has started to do um, in reaction to the current events. So I think what's very important about to know about the ASF is in addition to our role in the Conference of Presidents, we're also a library and archive. We're also dedicated to preserving and promoting this history and culture and, and the Sephardic Jewish role in uh, going back to the beginning of America is, is very pivotal to keep historical perspective on this. So with that in mind, when, when I was watching the recording of George Floyd with the knee to his neck, pinned to the ground, struggling to breathe, begging for his life for eight minutes, 46 seconds, beneath someone we entrusted to uphold the law, not to act as judge, jury, and executioner, it rightly offended mine and every American's and every Jewish person's uh, moral being. Our ancestors came to these shores as refugees in search of freedom, 
and its blessings of peace and prosperity. And President George Washington in his famous letter to the Sephardic congregation in Newport pledged that the USA will give to bigotry no sanction and to persecution no assistance. Americans, he continued, enjoy liberty as our inherent natural right, not as an indulgence of one class of people to another. And yet 230 years later, Jews remain, according to the FBI hate crime statistics, the most persecuted minority in America. More than 150 years after emancipation, nearly 60 years after the March on Washington and the uh, end of state-sanctioned segregation, African-Americans continue to face racism. Why? The answer is, however wondrous the words of our tradition, however wondrous uh, the teachings of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, they will be as ink blots on a page unless we, as generations of Americans before us, strive with patriotism, courage, intelligence, dignity, and character to give the principles for which we stand force and meaning in the world. And that's what we at the American Party Federation are trying to do, trying to highlight the connections between the Sephardic community and the principles of the American founding. Uh, to give one quick example, I'm sure everybody here knows four score and seven years ago, the speech of Abraham Lincoln. He, he actually probably got that from a Sephardic hacham, Rabbi Sabatu Marias at Congregation Mikveh Israel, who gave an amazing Independence Day sermon as he was worrying about whether the battle at Gettysburg would be decided to the right to, in, in, the, in the pursuit of justice or whether we would fail and whether the forces of evil and the Southern Confederacy would win. Thankfully, a few days later after Shabbat, actually right after Shabbat, he found out that the battle had been successful. And then a few months later, Abraham Lincoln perhaps found inspiration in what uh, Hakam Moriah said and put it into the Gettysburg Address. Thank you so much, Jason, for your answer and for all the incredible and hard work that you do with ASF. Um, I'd love to move over to Rabbi Ricky Hittery on the same question. Uh, thank you, uh, Jason. You mentioned uh, Rabbi Sabata Moraes. He also uh, gave a sermon uh, before the Civil War uh, against slavery, uh, quoting many sources. And uh, the the board uh, was upset that he was getting into politics. Uh, no politics from the pulpit, and so they banned him from giving any more sermons for the next few months. Uh, so that that's a that's a good warning to rabbis. Um. But, um, you know, I was speaking to a community member that grew up in the South uh, during segregation, and she remembers uh, going to Robert E. Lee High School, and uh, many of her friends now from New York went to Abraham Lincoln High School. Uh, but she remembers having a very close connection with uh, the Black community and working side by side, and uh, we all know uh, about how close uh, Dr. King and Rabbi Heschel were, um, and Dr. King uh, supporting Israel and fighting for Soviet jury. Uh, he, was, uh, a, he had an appointment to spend the Passover stay there uh, with Rabbi Heschel before he was assassinated. And so um, you know, when we think about that and then um, we see the events of today and we're outraged by George Floyd, we automatically want to come and show solidarity. Um, however, we are living in a country that is more and more polarized and um, simply showing solidarity isn't, isn't so easy, is uh, fraught with contradictions and, a dile and dilemmas. Um, we, wanna, we wanna come, we wanna show up, but then when we, uh, we do, when we come as proud Jews, as people that love Israel, 
we find that we're told that we have to leave some of our identity at the door. Um, and uh, I th this is painful, I think, to a lot of us, because uh, we feel that our Judaism and our love for Israel go hand in hand with our, um, our fight against racism. And uh, we're not sure why um, all these issues have to be uh, put together. I, I want to read two quotes. Uh, the first one from Barry Weiss uh, in her book, um, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. She, she writes, violence that begins with the Jews never ends with them. And we all know that to be true. A second quote from Ruth Weiss. She writes, modern Jews have enthusiastically fought for the civil and human rights of other persecuted minorities. It is, un, it is, an, it is un, almost unbearably discouraging for the Jews to admit that other minorities, including other persecuted minorities, do not share their conviction, but to the contrary, discover in anti-Semitism a handy political tool of their own. Um, sadly, uh, tragically, we find that too many um, uh, leaders uh, in, the, in the black community, um, including political, religious leaders, uh, uh, music artists are freely um, speaking about uh, again against Israel and in anti-Semitic ways, and that I think makes us feel very uncomfortable. And I don't think any of us should have to feel like we need to check our fundamental loyalties and beliefs at the door in order to show our solidarity. So I'm sorry that the world is in such a place, and I hope that will come down. Having said that. I don't think that gives us an excuse or an out to do nothing and to remain indifferent about what is going on. And uh, there are many individuals and organizations that really are doing good work and that we can partner with. Um, I spoke to a representative from um, APAC uh, earlier. Um, I asked him, are you bringing leaders of the black community on APAC trips like they do for congressmen? And he said, yes, th yes they are. Um, not as organizations, but as individuals. And uh, I think we all can identify um, inspiring people. I'll mention, because he passed away last week, John Lewis, who uh, always a great supporter uh, of Israel, um, someone who stood up to his principles, would never speak at any event that was hosted by Farrakhan. Um, and so, you know, so, so different from many others. So there are great leaders like that. There are uh, people that we can and should partner with. Um, there are lots of grass, grassroots organizations. Um, you know, I know at, at Yeshiva University um, has many programs where the undergraduate students go to local public schools, local high schools that are in uh, Washington Heights and help tutor kids and help them help mentor them um, to, uh, to, to, to get ahead. And so there's a tremendous amount of good work that we can do and uh, we need not and should not be asked to compromise our own uh, pride as Jews and our own love for Israel. Thank you so much, Rabbi. And Rina, I want to give the floor over to you. What Rabbi Hittery is describing in terms of having to check part of our identity at the door, it's, it's a phenomenon that I dealt with as a student. It's a phenomenon that I, I deal with as a professional. I will say that not that this is entirely, not that this entirely explains it, but in the past, when there have been big demonstrations for or on by the black community or other communities seeking that respect and that protection, those who have showed up 
more often than not, have been the pro-Palestinian groups. And oftentimes those pro-Palestinian groups, it's for them as the way they identify, it's typically that they're anti-Israel, right? They, they don't see Israel existing. They're not interested in Israel existing. They're the ones that have often showed up to these movements. So it makes sense that a lot of these communities would think Zionism's gotta be the most toxic thing and that Judaism being so tied to Israel might be a little questionable. Doesn't explain everything, but it's certainly, you know, there's some, some degree of a correlation there. What I'm seeing um, in the campus space as we're bringing up leaders, creating leaders, people who will lead this country in not too long from now, whatever state the country is gonna be in, COVID, no COVID, who knows? <laughs> but we're seeing a unique opportunity in the campus space for the first time in these types of conversations, this is not the, the Jewish students pushing their way to be involved in the conversation. This is them being invited to bring their own chair to the table. And we have to capitalize on this opportunity to build that bridge because that tremendous gap, if someone in the black community has never engaged positively with someone from the Jewish community, falling victim to those tropes, those anti-Semitic tropes, of course it makes sense, it's inevitable. Right, whatever is different from us that we don't know, it's easy to judge it and categorize it. That's just how humans are. At Stand With Us, we actually had a tremendous opportunity last week to engage 120 students from historically black colleges and universities. These are students that are emerging leaders in their communities. A lot of them will go on to lead big companies, will go on into local office or maybe even national office. And we spoke to them about Israel and about anti-Semitism and what they as leaders can do to combat anti-Semitism. It was incredibly impactful, even through Zoom, even through this little computer, and through the, the box. And the results we saw from it were incredible. These students had never been engaged on the topic of Israel before. It was clear when they were addressing what they had heard. It was clear that they had really no sense of any historical facts. And we were able to provide that for them. And as a follow-up, students from six of those universities, it was 120 students, uh, less universities because they were multiple people from certain schools, six campuses have asked for a follow-up program about the U.S.-Israel relationship. When that positive engagement happens, incredible bridge building happens. And we have a real opportunity to utilize that here so that future leaders, both within the Jewish and black community and any other minority communities on campus can recognize the power when everyone is together. And to Rabbi Hittery's point, if they see how Israel is helping the world, that Israel is not this toxic place committing atrocious humanitarian violations, but is a, a country that's helping people all over the world, like through Innovation Africa, Save a Child's Heart, the generosity that the country has and how that mission and, and those values speak not only for Israel, but for the Jewish people and how they're one and the same. That's how we can really show up as our full selves and be able to be part of that exciting bridge building and community building. I see it happening. We're part of the momentum. It's happening. It's a train that's left the station and it is extremely exciting. And I think in the, in the coming years, we're going to see the positive results of it.
Thanks so much, Rena. And so this is actually the last question from Eddie and I, and after this, we're gonna open it up to some questions from the audience. But for those in the audience who may wanna take action to combat anti-Semitism, racism, or other forms of prejudice, where would you as a panel suggest that we start or what kinds of actions can people potentially take? And um, Rabbi Hedri, I would love to start with you. Uh, of course, thank you. Um, so I, I would I would say three uh, relatively uh, modest things to do. Um, number one, education, educate ourselves about what's going on in America. Um, you know, we have uh, always great experiences with the police, but we see that not every community has the same experience. Um, so we need to learn more about the judicial system. We need to learn more about what's going on. So there are some fantastic books, documentaries, dialogues that we can be having. We have to be uh, more educated. And uh, news sources, I know it's harder than ever to, uh, to get good news out there, um, but there are, there are good journalists, there are good news sources. I'm happy to share my, some of my favorite writers and, uh, and, uh, and newspapers. Um, and so, you know, learn from different sides. So I would say that's um, number one. Uh, second is to use, use our language precisely. We're thinking about now the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, the Talmud said, says was because of one word error of inviting Kamsa, uh, inviting Bar Kamsa instead of Kamsa. I once saw a cartoon that said, uh, so he typed in Kamsa and the autocorrect or Bar Kamsa, so because of autocorrect. And because of the uh, basis hatred that comes from that. So um, we need to use language so, so, so precisely, language creates and destroys. And just two, two examples of many that I could bring. When, when people talk about defund the police, and that sounds to me like a horrendous, terrible, and dangerous idea, uh, please keep us safe, keep this country going. And although there are, are problems, so we address them, but deep on the police, that doesn't make any sense to me. And so you ask them, and they say, oh, we don't mean it literally, we mean uh, to allocate some funding for uh, social services. Well, that means something completely different. So um, it turns out there are some people that do mean it literally, it's happened recently. And I think when people continue say, repeating uh, something that they don't mean, uh, ends up entering their mind and other people misunderstand them. So um, say what you mean and mean what you say. And, uh, you know, um, and uh, another example of um, racial slurs, uh, we find a lot of people uh, uh, unfortunately using them and you ask them, I say, well, I don't really mean it. Well, if you don't really mean it, then don't say it because um, language that we use affects the way we think. And if we call people a nickname, uh, if we call them something uh, negative, then when we repeat it often enough, uh, it will enter into our, our latent uh, um, biases. And the people around us also listen to that and it will affect them. So let's use language precisely and not exaggerate. Um, and lastly, um, making a Kiddush Hashem everywhere we go and everything we do, uh, in everything we do. There's no hatred more baseless than judging people by the color of their skin or by their religion. Um, and uh, um, we, can, uh, we can help uh, fight anti-Semitism in big ways, but 
also in small ways in every interaction by uh, by uh, acting with honesty, with integrity, and with kindness, and baseless love uh, towards those who we interact with. I think that is uh, the best thing we could do. So um, this, I think, starts starts with, within, uh, within ourselves, starts at home and in our own communities, and then from there, we can bring strength and, uh, and help uh, bring redemption through justice. Okay, thank you, Rabbi Hader. I appreciate it. Um, I think, Rena, I, I would also love to hear your perspective, especially through that campus lens. Definitely. If there was a word that I would say is the key word, the buzzword for getting this started, as Rabbi Hader said so eloquently, it's education. It starts with understanding what the issues are, who the issues affect, how they affect them, what the impact is. Overall, I think. In general, if we expect people to be allies for us, we have to be prepared to be allies for other people too. Uh, and another thing I would, I would add to that is making sure we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That yes, there have been a lot of vocal people from the black community, figures in different industries that have said problematic things, but the response among the black community calling that out has been tremendous. I have a little anecdote I would wanna share, a very quick one. Uh, a few months ago, one of the students we work with, Maddie Gunn at Michigan State University, had her mezuzah stolen from her doorpost. We helped her file a report with the police. They checked video footage and they saw it was a fellow student. They were able to identify who it was. Now, the police encouraged Maddie to press charges, press charges against the student for what he did. But Maddie decided that this was an opportunity to proactively educate this student. Instead, she invited him to visit the Holocaust Museum that was near campus for him to, to understand the significance of a Jewish person feeling comfortable and safe to put a mezuzah on their doorpost. After going through the museum and feeling incredibly impacted by what he saw, the student wrote an apology to Maddie and he paid for a new mezuzah. Now, in this cancel culture, it would have been easy to say, throw this guy out. This guy's anti-Semitic. He targeted her door. He, tar he knew there was a Jew in there. And this was an, an action that came from a bad place. Now, it could have come from a bad place. It could have come from ignorance. It could have come from hatred. But what Manny did is provide that opportunity. She had an open mind and an open heart. And that's how she was able to have tremendous impact. And every time that student is going to see a mezuzah on a doorpost, he's going to remember what it meant. If he was walking in this neighborhood in Brooklyn, he'd be thinking about it every door, every house he'd see, every block, down Bedford Avenue. He'd be constantly reminded of what he learned. There's a tremendous opportunity, I said it earlier, I'll say it again, for proactive education and outreach. And it can work wonders. People have to do the work, but you're not alone if you wanna get involved. This is not a fight you have to take on by yourself. There's a tremendous group of people, like the lovely people who are part of Yad Chazakah that want to do this education and want to do this proactive work. And all it takes is, is starting. I think the, just don't get overwhelmed or intimidated by it. It's, it's more accessible than you think. And there's an incredible group of people that want to help. Thanks, Rena. Um, Jason, I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion followed by Hindi, who I know also has a point she wants to address from um, Rabbi Hittery earlier about working with those in the Black community as well. 
Sure. So I, I think Rabbi Hittery provided a, a great framework, and I'll just add, add some examples to it. So first, we need to check our principles. As uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said in a less fr frequently quoted part of his I Have a Dream speech, let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. This was a recurring theme in his ministry, was that we cannot achieve just ends by immoral means, and we must reject violence. Uh, we all want the American promise of equal justice. There's a way to achieve it, and there's a way not to achieve it. And those who are preaching division and hatred are, are not committed to the vision of Dr. King or to the founders of this country. Second, we must have the courage of our convictions to stand against hate regardless of its source. As I mentioned earlier, uh, with our connection with Sheikh Dr. Muhammad Alisa from the Muslim World League, um, he, he took a stand. He took a stand. He came out against Holocaust denial. He then came to New York. He came, met with us at the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage and explained his thinking, why he took this stand. Um, and it took courage. Uh, he received death threats. He received attacks. The more work he's done with us, he's continued to receive attacks. And yet he's continued pushing forward. So again, the ASF and the combat anti-Semitism movement, we honored him as the first Muslim leader for creatively and courageously combating anti-Semitism. And this is the kind of true friendship rooted in intelligence and moral courage that we need. And, and that means standing together at all costs. Third, as we approach Tisha B'Av, we should take to heart its teachings on disunity and destruction caused by baseless hatred which is another name, if you think about it, for discriminating against a collective, whether a race, a gender, class, or any other form of group identity. Individuals are much too complex to be reduced to such classifications. And as the uh, omni-American intellectual Albert Murray writes, race to all people who use the term correctly is a matter of a few easily observed physiological characteristics. Consciousness and race just don't correlate. And lastly, we need to focus on healing the divisions within our own community and focusing on bringing our community together. And there's no better time than Tisha B'Av to start this process of teshuva. Uh, I, I'd like to leave you with two quotations. One is from uh, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, Joseph Hetz, who although not Sephardi, was a student of Hacham Marias. Uh, and he's, he defined, ye shall be holy, the call of Kiddushim as reverence for parents consideration for the needy, prompt wages for reasonable hours, honorable dealing, no tale bearing or malice, love of one's neighbor and cordiality to the alien, equal justice to rich and poor, just measures and balances together with an abhorrence of everything unclean, irrational, or heathen. And lastly, the quote from Professor Ephraim Isaac, who's a distinguished member of the ASF's board of directors and is the, believe it or not, the an Ethiopian Yemenite Jew founded African-American African-American studies at Harvard. He was recently honored again by the Harvard Divinity School. And he said, if humanity is to survive, we must all seek and strive to walk the walk of the righteous. And I highly recommend everyone as part of your education to read his book from Abraham to Obama, A History of Jews, Africans, and African-Americans. Thank you. Thanks. And then Hindi, again, I, I would love for you to, to wrap up this last point um, and as well as addressed um, what I know a lot of people in the room, virtual room are thinking about is how to work with leaders in the Black community, um, sure. especially when it comes to anti-Semitism. Yeah. 
So, so first in terms of what to read and watch, um, I know in my family, our Tisha B'Av custom around watching has evolved over the years. We used to have a very strict only Holocaust movies post midday, and then, you know, things got a little more lenient. So depending on where you are on the Tisha B'Av watching spectrum, if it is your custom, I highly recommend um, the film Just Mercy, which is now available on Amazon Prime. And I had the incredible privilege of traveling to Selma and Montgomery, actually right before the pandemic hit the States. And it was truly transformative. You know, we always talk to people about the transformative experience of visiting Israel um, and being immersed in black history in the South and then walking through the new museum there by Brian Stevenson, who also produced Just Mercy, you really just understand um, not only the history, but the present day civil rights movement on a whole new level. So I'd say watch Just Mercy. I'm also reading a book called Me and White Supremacy. It's hard to read, right? Not everything we read do we have to agree with wholesale, but it definitely gives you some insight. And the only thing that I wanted to add to what Rabbi Hittery said so eloquently, um, like so many of us, anytime there is a protest, I immediately scan for Palestinian flags, right? I'm sure Rena can relate. It's a protest, it's like your radar goes on, any Palestinian flags. And I remember the days of from Ferguson to Palestine and moments when um, protests combating racism quickly turned into anti-Israel moments. And actually, that has not yet happened. I do stress the word yet, but if you were scanning the protests as I was, to the extent possible, and from people who were there on the streets, this movement has not been co-opted by the pro-Palestinian movement, period. It has not, yet. If we want it to stay that way, it means we need to be, sorry to quote Hamilton, in the room where that happens. And there will be a room, I promise you there will be a room. There will come a time when more policy positions are written. And if we wanna influence those policies, be in the room. It is very easy to complain afterwards. How could they have said this about us? How could they have written it about Israel? Guess what? You weren't in the room. So you had no ability to influence, no ability to raise your voice. The movement right now in our country has been clear. It is not about anything else other than combating racism, period, full stop. And the way to keep it that way is to be engaged and to be in the room. Thank you so much, Indy, and thank you to Rabbi Hittery, Jason, and Rena. Um, I know you just mentioned Just Mercy. Um, as a part of Yad Hazakah, we are actually planning to add some more of these um, media and literacy opportunities. So we're actually going to be hosting a movie and a book club the third week of August and having Just Mercy as a part of it, having books to share, and just more ways for us to be engaged and informed about everything. So. Um, right now, we're going to start to um, open up the questions from, that we've been receiving from the audience. And everybody, thank you so much for engaging with us here and um, joining us for this Yad HaZakavan. And I think Eddie's going to ask that first question from the group. Actually, I think, Eliana, I'll let you, I'll let you go because I don't think I've gotten any sent to me quite yet from, <laughs> from David. <laughs> so I'll let you go first. Okay, cool. No worries. So I think something that's on the mind of a lot of people, it, and it's something that we've just discussed a little bit, is Black Lives Matter. I know it's almost become a taboo space. And 
there's this dual duality of what's happening. There's the people within our community who um, stand with the cause and it's hard for them to stand up against those who oppose it because they feel that the group is against us. But at the same time, there is that legitimate concern from the other side that says there are many people who are seen as the face of Black Lives Matter um, and they are anti-Semitic. And I think the, the question I wanna pose to the four of you and open to the forum is, how do we respond to both sides of this coin? How can we stand with Black Lives Matters as a cause, but and also combat those who think it's just a lost cause, really? Hindi, um, I am sure you and Reen, everybody on this panel has it, but Hindi, you can definitely go first. I'll just say very quickly, I just think we should get our, um, just be clear about the facts. So, you know, the boogeyman in Black Lives Matter is the charter that was written a number of years ago that called Israel genocidal, which is obviously a blood libel against our national homeland. That is clear. But what I think people um, are not as aware of, to no fault of our own, this is complicated stuff, is that there is not a through line from that moment and that meeting to today. Right now, there is no one Black Lives Matter organization. The protests that we saw on the streets were hundreds of different decentralized grassroots movements, groups, communities popping up. And I can promise you that 99.9% .9 of people who say the words Black Lives Matter have no idea that five years ago in a room of five people, one person snuck in an incredibly anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist thing. It does not animate the movement, certainly, like with any movement, there are bad actors. I have no doubt that there are people who associate with Black Lives Matter who are anti-Semitic because guess what? There is anti-Semitism in America, period. It is in the air, it is not black, it is not white, it is not right wing or left wing. There is anti-Semitism in America. And we also know that anti-Semitism thrives in populist movements. So we're not crazy for watching this and being careful, but to say that this, to describe it as an organization is to misunderstand what Black Lives Matter is meant today. To quote Jamel Hill, who we had the privilege of speaking to last night, Jamel is a writer for The Atlantic who wrote a piece in response to Deshaun Jackson's anti-Semitism. And as a black woman, she wrote a piece about what she describes as a blind spot in her community growing up around anti-Semitism. And she said, you don't like Black Lives Matter? No problem. There's about a million other anti-racist groups popping up right now. So I just think, you know, to Rabbi Hittery's point at being precise in our language, we are smart, intelligent people. There is no need to be simplistic about something that is, nothing, that is nowhere near simple. It is incredibly complex. Black Lives Matter is a philosophy. It is meant to make a point that up until now, in everyone's mind, Black lives have not mattered as much as other lives. So it's meant to say, we matter. So we need to bear in mind what that anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist comment was five years ago, understand it as a decentralized movement, and understand that if we want it to remain um, a safe space for Jews, that again, we need to be part of the conversation, not apart from the conversation. Thank you so much, Hindi. And we're only gonna have time really to do, you know, one answer from one panelist for each question. So I wanna move on to a question from Sari Sit. Um, who had a question about funding the police, uh, defunding the police. And Sari, 
um, they're going to unmute you. And if you could just direct it to one of the panelists or let us know if you just want anybody to answer it. Uh, anybody is fine. I just, I've seen a few Black Lives Matter protests and more signs than Black Lives Matter are defund the police. And that frightens me. So I guess you, I could ask, you could ask anybody. Um, I guess I can frame the question. Are you asked, I just want to reframe it here. Are you asking what the panelists think of the, the language that goes behind the police? Or you just, I, I guess I, I just want to clarify, I guess. Okay, so my question would be is since, uh, I, I haven't been seeing honestly any BDS signs because it's and Palestinian flags. Like I have in the past um, in protests, but in this current um, Black Lives Matter protest, there are more signs defund the police than there are Black Lives Matter signs. And um, I mean, is Black Lives Matter calling to defund the police? What is your feeling about defunding the police? Where do you stand on you know, defunding the police? And is there a further agenda why is there a need to defund the police? So either Rena or Jason or Hindi, um, did anybody want to try to Or Rabbi Hittery, feel free. I know you brought that up earlier, so I think you would have a good explanation. But Sari, it, it, it frightens me as well very much. Um, I can tell you, you know, in, in Brooklyn, I think we all have heard the, um, the fire, fireworks every night going late into midnight. Um, and police doing nothing about it. Uh, last week, uh, my father had, uh, who's on the call here, um, had graffiti in front of his house from a gang, you know, and this is like new things that we've never seen before. And so Brooklyn feels like a more dangerous place uh, because of this. So um, I, uh, I, I don't like the, um, the, the slogan. Um, uh, if people are calling for more so social services for uh, other people dealing with homeless and with um, uh, with uh, 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 um, people who are uh, mentally unstable um, that could do better than the police. That sounds like a good idea, but I think people should say that. And um, uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I've seen a tagline that some people are using, um, ACAB, all cops are bad. Uh, the, the word B is worse, but I don't want to say it in public. And, you know, what a terrible, horrible thing to say. You know, if you want to talk about making generalizations and all Jews, all black, all anything, you know that's going to be a false statement. And to take people who are putting their lives, for the most part, on the line uh, for us and keeping us safe, and to say such a terrible thing, it comes from a place of, of hatred and uh, moral rot, and I think is very dangerous. So... You know, I think we should uh, encourage people to and say what they mean. And uh, are there better, better policing practices that we can learn? Great. No, then, then put them, then, then do that. But uh, I think defund is uh, coming from a place of deep hatred. Eliana, did you want to go with the next question? Yeah, I think um, some other questions that have kept coming in is. We live in Brooklyn, we live in Deal, we live in communities that are so close to other minorities, especially in the Hispanic and Black communities. What are ways that 
we as a community or as individuals can take those small steps to join in and take movements of solidarity, how can we go about reaching out to our neighbors? And um, I think Rena or Jason, both of you can have really good points about it. Um, I saw Jason's hand go up first, so Jason, if you want to take the floor on this one. Unmute. There we go. Um, yeah, every, every year the ASF organizes uh, with the Philos Project, which is a Christian organization, their Latino division, uh, an art exhibition that brings together Latino artists who want to connect with the Jewish community. Some of them have crypto-Jewish roots. Others are just interested in connecting with the Jewish community. Uh, this past year, we had uh, Latin American connections to Zionism. And so the exhibit features artwork with Boulevard and Ben-Gurion. I think these kinds of cultural activities uh, where we can we can share our historical, cultural, linguistic experiences are, are critically important to have good relations uh, with uh, with these uh, other minority communities. And just uh, I, I don't want to uh, give a full answer to the to the prior question, but obviously we're all very concerned about the safety of every community. There were some city council members, including one of the founders of the city council's Black Caucus, who opposed the defunding of the police. So I think it's also to to make mention of this that. Everyone is concerned about safety. Everyone is concerned about security. Those people who are preaching division and hate are not serious about improving black lives or anyone else's life. Thank you so much, Jason. And I had a question from Ilana. Ilana, if you're still here, I saw that you had a question for Hindi. If not, I'll go ahead and ask it uh, for you. So I'll give her a second. Okay. If not, I'll, I'll go ahead. Um, Ilana was asking Hindi that she saw that you had an initiative in Crown Heights. She wanted to ask how to go about getting involved with it. Hindi, if, um, if you could take this one. Okay, great. Um, we'd love for you to be part of it, assuming you live in the area, which I guess you do. So um, I, can I just tell you my email address? Because I have to, I'll just hook you up. It's as simple as that. Oh, there you are. So it's my name, which you see in my Zoom box. So pupgoh at ujafedny.org. And if that was too fast, Eddie or Mo or Alberta, they all have my email address. I would love to connect you with the group. And think, thanks for that awesome question, Alana. I think, the, I think we're gonna be wrapping up here a little bit just because we know we're a bit over time. So again, thank you all for joining us here. Um, I think the last question that I, I want to pose, and I think it's um, a great note to end on, and I'm going to direct it at Rena. The younger generation is really trying to be more involved in being that next step and making sure we are um, really being our better selves as a community. I think for a lot of young people, especially those entering college and who are leaving high school and want to have an opinion, how do they really know how to tackle this on that dual scale of both how to combat anti-Semitism and stand in solidarity with those around them? Definitely. Part of approaching that question or part of wanting to grow in that space is understanding what anti-Semitism is. And there, I kind of alluded to this in my, my first answer, my first response to the first question. There are some obvious ways that we can identify anti-Semitism and then there are some ways that are a bit more obscure, uh, particularly regarding Israel. What 
we use that same with us. It's not a system we developed. It's Natan Sharansky's system for defining anti-Semitism regarding Israel. It's the three Ds. If a statement you hear demonizes Israel or Israelis, compares them to Nazis, evil, if a statement delegitimizes Israel's right to exist, so basically ignores any history pre-48 and accuses Israel and Israelis of being colonialists, typically white European colonialists, or if a statement holds Israel to a double standard unlike any other country. It's something we happen to see a lot in the news where when Israel deals with a terrorist attack, it's Israel, uh, IDF attacked, young Palestinian. And then like two paragraphs in, it'll say that the Palestinian was yielding a knife trying to, trying to stab people, right? We see that delegitimization all the time, whereas other countries that are dealing with terrorism or terrorist attacks or that are trying to protect themselves are dealt with in a very different way. So the first step for any student to be able to, or any young professional or any person to be able to, to wanna be firm in their Jewish identity and also be an ally, it's gotta start at home. There's this quote of, or there's this phrase, right? We're preaching to the choir, but if the choir is singing off key, that's a problem. If the choir is not in the same tune, that's a problem. So it has to start with understanding what anti-Semitism is, what it can look like in those conversations and how to accurately deal with it. Oftentimes it's coming from ignorance. So how do we have those difficult conversations? We happen to provide a lot of those resources to help students do that, to not just know what to say, but how to say it and how to open up the floor to someone who wants to participate in that type of conversation, how to open up vulnerabilities. And as Hindi had mentioned earlier, finding those common values and, and how we can connect and how we can understand the way we perceive what's going on and what's actually going on on the ground, perceptions versus the reality. So it has to start with first understanding what anti-Semitism is. Once a student or a young professional is confident in that space and knows that they have the resources behind them to be able to have difficult conversations, but also appropriately hold those who are saying anti-Semitic things accountable in whatever way that is, that will also allow that person to be able to identify with the struggle that an ally is having, but make sure that they're not sacrificing themselves in the process, that they're not sacrificing parts of their identity in the process. So it starts at home, it starts with your choir, and after that, you're able to successfully be able to engage those who wanna be engaged. And there's a lot more people who wanna be engaged than you think. The, the majority that doesn't really know much is silent, but they know they should know about this issue. They know they should know about Israel. They know they should know about anti-Semitism, but they might not know where to start. How powerful would it be if you are that educated person that they're starting with you? Thank you so much, Farina. I think that's a perfect way for us to wrap up. I want to thank the crowd. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I know we went a little bit over time. Um, thank you for all the fantastic questions from the crowd and really thank you to the entire panel. Uh, really, this was incredibly informative and this is something that we could really use as a guide for how we could get involved and take action. Um, I just want to reiterate before we go that Yad Chazaka is here and ready to engage in a constructive, respectful manner with anybody that's looking to get involved with us. We're always happy to talk, uh, to help you know, 
take action in combating racism, anti-Semitism, um, any form of hate uh, that there may be. Um, we're also planning on doing more events, so please look out for that. Please check out our Instagram where we have a lot of the content that we've put out in the past and we'll have more updates about future events and future initiatives. So thank you so much everybody for being here. We'll, we'll end now and all the best and have a great night. Thanks everyone. This has been a Yad Chazaka conversation. Thank you for listening. We hope we'll see you again.